In this episode of a side of data interview, Bernd Rucker about various topics connected to workflow automation. Welcome to a side of data, a podcast about unconventional side of data science. In this episode of A Side of Data, I interview Bernd Rucker, a co-founder and chief technologist at Camunda, workflow and decision automation platform. He has helped many companies, including T-Mobile, Lufthansa, and Zalando, to automate their workflows. Over the years, he has worked on several open-source workflow engines, such as Camunda and ZB.io. He has also contributed to the BPMN standard and published a book about the use of this standard to achieve workflow automation. The book is called Real Life BPMN. He is also in the process of writing a new book called Practical Workflow Automation that is soon to be published. Welcome to the show, Bernd. <laughs> Anton, thank you so much for having me. I'm kind of laughing because I'm not sure if the, if the new book is really released. Pretty soon, I hope so, <laughs> but I still have to finish the writing part, so uh, let's cross fingers. Um, but yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. Uh, yeah, so as you're an expert about workflow automation, so that's very naturally come to the point that I contact you and ask about workflow automation, like how it works and what it is, like could you explain to normal people <laughs> that who never heard of uh, workflow automation or even about business processes or workflows? Let's try to do that. Yeah, happy to. Um, so if we if we start very abstract, a workflow is basically, an, basically a, a sequence of activities. So you want to do a couple of activities like one after the other. That's kind of... Um, one of the basic things of a workflow um, that makes almost everything kind of a workflow. I mean, you're even probably talking about, I have this workflow to manage my emails or these kind of things. So um, this is technically in a way correct. And if you talk about automation of workflows, it's normally about um, automating the control of that sequence. Like, um, If you use software, for example, like workflow engines, which we probably want to talk about in a minute, um, they are good at like, hey, you just did this so that I know that the next task you, you need to do or you should do is this. Um, and that like automates the control of the workflow. It not necessarily um, automates all the activities. So activities within a workflow can be like everything. It can be um, like task lists, like humans, have to do something. It could be that you do um, things like, um, what's typically called service orchestration, like I, I want to invoke um, some APIs, some services. There are things going on with RPA that you, you um, integrate bots, like <laughs> robots in a way to steer some user interfaces or whatever. So um, basically you orchestrate these different kind of things. And that's um, what workflow automation is basically about. In, in, a, in a super nutshell. Hope, hopefully that was understandable even by normal people. Try to. Then what is this, what's the difference between workflow process and routine? Oh, <laughs> that's a very good question, actually. Um, I dedicated an own section in my book about the terminology. And um, to be honest, there is not a, there's not a clear definition, at, at, at least as far as I know. So um, 
there are a lot of conceptions around the different terms. So for example, if I say process, a lot of, if I'm in IT, a lot of people are more thinking about like threats or this kind of thing. So more very technical concepts. If I say business process, a lot of people think of, oh, business processes like business process management, like these low code, not very technical, very, uh, very complicated thing, which we won't, don't want to talk about. So that's very often a, a conception people have. So, um, I recently talk a lot about workflow automation. For some people, that triggers a lot about workflow is human task management. Um, but for me, that's not the case. For me, workflow automation is like really automating every workflow. It can be like fully automated. And in that sense, a workflow is very often also a business process. And that is kind of a routine to do something. So it's it's really overlapping. Um, the The definition I now did for myself at the moment is kind of uh, the business process is normally what the why what you want to want to achieve and the workflow um, automation is kind of the way there so workflow engine is something I, I use to automate things so it's kind of the how do i do that um, but it's a very weak thing and i i normally try to pick up the wording my customers or my peers are using in the discussion so <laughs> Okay. You you also mention in like many of your um, blog posts, etc., like a lot of words about workflow engines. Mm -hmm. So what are those, and why do you need different ones for? So like... the, the the basic idea of a workflow engine is that um, you can define a blueprint, like a model of how this workflow is supposed to um, to. Um, to be executed, like hey, there's the first activity, then this, maybe you have a decision then to go that way or this, or you do things in parallel, whatever. So you can define these kind of workflow models, like a blueprint, and then you can execute them on an engine. And the why do I need special software for that? A um, couple of reasons. One of the most important is typically in workflows, um, you have to wait for things. So if you have like human task management, you have to wait for the human, and that might take days probably even so you have to to store the state somewhere um, really persistently um, but it can be the same thing if you do um, like service integration if you send out a message and you wait for a response message which comes asynchronous um, or whatever it is um, that involves waiting and that involves state handling persistent state handling and that's a that's where it normally starts to be complicated um, especially the same thing, like you have a lot of subsequent requirements. As soon as you do state handling, you wait for things, you probably want to have an, a tool where you can see where you are waiting. Um, you probably need uh, mechanisms to escalate if you're waiting too long and so on and so forth. So a lot of these like requirements come from the persistent waiting. And that's why you have own tools for that, like workflow engines and the surrounding tools. Um, the second part of the question was like, why there are so many different ones. And probably that's a bit harder to answer. So um, let's let's try. I tried not to talk too long about that, but I could, because I think I could go on for like ages about that. But um, let's start historically, probably. So if we look back, and not too much back, I mean, I could look back 20 years or 30 years, but I find it most interesting to look back like 10 years ago, there was something called BPM, business process management. There were BPMS, business 
process management suites. And these were typically also workflow in it, engines in its core. But um, the vision at that time was in a way that um, you basically make workflow engines in a way that probably even non-technical people can draw diagrams and make them, uh, yeah, and automate them. Like business folks drawing, clicking together, and then just get it into production. That's the zero code or low code idea. Very often this comes from, from big vendors. So the whole tooling around that was very often very heavyweight, very big, very expensive, very hard um, to install, operate, and so on and so forth. And my experience with these kind of engines, um, that was basically when I started. So when I started um, doing things with workflow and BPM, that was the tooling at that time. And I saw that in many consulting assignments as customers. And it never really took off. It never really worked out. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think one of the most important were like, if you automate like core business processes, it's too complicated for business people to do all the technical nuts and bolts around that. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And that means you hand over these tools to your IT in order to get it going. And they normally hate it because it's totally proprietary. It's not what they are used to work with. They used to work with some kind of programming language, some kind of um, testing environment, CI, CD, continuous integration, whatever. Like um, they don't want to want to work with that proprietary isolated silo application. Um, and this is why it never really worked. And that burned the topic for quite a while. That's one of the reasons why I'm not using the term BPM too often these days, because very often I meet people like, ah, yeah, BPMS, we had that thing from whatever, IBM, Pega, and so on and so forth. We hated it. Um, we don't do that anymore. And that's why there's a different kind of tools. And that emerged like, I would say, basically four or five years back, where we saw much more lightweight workflow automation um, tools, workflow engines. Um, like I contributed to a couple of them myself and they were kind of kind of a library feeling to it. So if you're a developer, you add that library and then you have workflow automation like within your code. You don't have to implement all the hard parts. You, you use that library um, and then it can integrate your code and the um, workflow parts of it. And that also means like you're not using any kind of wizard to integrate with other systems, but you're writing a piece of code and just uh, attach that to the workflow model. And that works actually um, pretty well to my experience. Um, and of course, now there are a couple of engines doing more or less that. And uh, um, recently there's even more movement in the whole market because we're, um, we're going more to the cloud. We're going more towards serverless. Um, that means it changes and a couple of other parameters. Um, there are new tools um, provided, for example, by the cloud vendors, um, which are in essence also workflow engines. So there's a lot going on actually in the market at the moment. Interesting. And be before I ask about uh, some real example where it can be used, I, um, it's interesting that you said uh, like you contrasted this PPMS systems and workflow automation engines. And um, as, as I imagine it, they both somehow united through, for example, usage of BPMN. Mm -hmm. Because I would ass I assume that the BPMS usually use this business process mod uh, modeling notation in order to express these uh, processes. And then uh, the B BPMS uses it in order to automate directly. Mm -hmm. 
while you say that the workflow automation engine they more low level and also even on your website you uh, specify that it's friendly for developers so how do you use bpm yeah. and is it important to actually use this visual uh, representation of the process okay so um let's try to do that step by step so um yes there is bpmn that's an iso standard to define these workflows it's a workflow language it's uh, has a graphical representation that i find very appealing and we make a very good experience with that for different people so even like business folks or operations folks so um let's say normal people can kind of read it without a long training course so um that's pretty cool and you can directly automate it that and that's the cool thing about bpmn so in the background even if it's a graphical model there is an xml dialect defined so you can store it as an xml file and you can give that to an engine and this engine can directly execute that and that's works pretty well um i'm emphasize that file thought uh, a bit because for example what what we do um is like if you use the modeler and you save a model, you really get that XML file. And you can, for example, put it into your own development project, like in that version control, like in Git, where you have the rest of your code. That already is part of that developer-friendly idea. A lot of the BPMS systems, the big ones, they come with own model repositories, their own versioning. They have the vision that you use their whole environment to develop. And the developer-friendly idea is more like, no, 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 the, 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 um, the workflow model, that's also kind of source code. It's, it it de defines a control flow in a way, um, but it's only one part of the, work, uh, of, the, of the source code. So you have to get that into the same, um, same origin in a way, and that's typically version control. And having said that, we are also using BPMN to execute the workflows. And I actually, I think that's um, what, the tools nowadays should do. I, I think it's a really good language. So not only the visual, but also like um, the constructs, the workflow language is pretty mature. So you can basically express all the important constructs out there. Um, some of the, that's what I can see, for example, for cloud vendors, if they, um, or also a couple of the Silicon Valley companies, which um, did their own workflow engine, um, they typically um, started to reinvent their own language. It's very often with that, yeah, BPMN is too complex. XML is kind of not what we want to use in 2020 and so on and so forth. And what you can see is that they um, invent that easy to use um, JSON dialect. And then they, when people start adopting it and, and um, basically modeling real life workflows over time, they see what they're missing in the language and they're adding constructs like one by one and you see how they move towards what we have with BPMN. So I don't see a big value of doing that. Um, so I'm totally a, a huge fan of BPMN. Um, what we do very differently, and that's to the last part of your question, um, the developer-friendly uh, thing is... For me, when you have one box in your BPMN model, one activity, um, which is, there's, a, for example, a so-called service task. And the service task means, hey, here's some service invoked, some API called. And what the BPMS low-code idea typically does is now you can use some kind of wizard to say, hey, this is a SOAP web service, this is a whistle file, and I wire it up by clicking some things together. And... The developer-friendly idea here is um, there's a service task. 
there's this box, and we connect it to code. And there's some normal code you have, and that's connected to the box. Whenever a workflow runs into that box, it, the workflow engine knows, okay, this code has to be executed. How that works exactly is a bit depends on the concrete engine you're using, but that's kind of the lightweight developer-friendly approach. Because then you can say, hey, I'm solving my sequence of activities problem in the workflow model, but only that. Everything else goes into the code because I'm most product productive at code. Interesting. I, I want to ask then, like you now, I, I guess already several years uh, that uh, in the field, people take BPMN models for, for granted, I would say. So how would you contrast these models and other available mm, models to represent the process, not to model and to execute, but to actually um, uh, explain. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, let's briefly think about what else is there. So at the moment, I would say the biggest competition, if you're discussing workflow models, like on the whiteboard, is really, I would call it PowerPoint way of modeling, like free form, like totally I'm just drawing things. That's what I see a lot. It's like reading on the whiteboard, I, I draw boxes and arrows without a clear semantics, um, which can work on a high level, but typically, um, I mean, leads to the known problems. Like somebody has to explain me um, how this is like meant, what that is meant to mean. Um, there are a lot of misunderstandings and so on and so forth. So I'm not a huge fan of using that on a broad base. Um, then there are other notations, like I would say, especially in the German speaking area, there's a lot of EPC, like eventual process chains, uh, because that was kind of invented in the German speaking area, like 30 years ago, something like that. Um, from my experience, they're still used a lot. And um, I'm not a big fan of them, but that would take like probably another five minutes to explain. So um, I leave it like that. Um, for some reasons, I think BPMN is easier um, to understand for most people, uh, most easier to, to, to model. So um, I see other things being used out there. And some, especially like business departments, are really fond of what they already have very often because it's simply already there. They invested in learning that. But um, in the examples I saw, BPMN is, uh, is simply easier to understand. I mean, I, I'm biased on that as well, for, for sure. I mean, I'm working with BPMN all the time, but I've seen it working so well in a lot of scenarios, even with people which are not trained on BPMN, they can at least read it mm -hmm. very well. Uh, but what about uh, the models that are produced by process mining tools, such as very simple yeah. arcs and arrows? Uh, arrows and uh, yeah, nodes but it's, or Petri It's kind of the same problem as we have with EPC, for example, is if it's if you only have um, boxes and arrows, um, a lot of concepts are hard to understand with boxes and arrows. Like take the example of what BPMN can do. It's like, hey, I'm in activity. And then whenever I am in that activity, some event can happen. And then you can model that at the boundary of that, uh, of that activity and say, I'm going like another path. And that's actually pretty pretty expressive in the picture where you say, um, or it can have like sub-processes where there are a couple of activities in it. And whenever something happens within these activities, you go another way. Um, if 
whatever, a cancellation comes in, a timeout happens, and so on and so forth. So the whole way of handling events is very expressive. And if you translate that to only boxes and arrows, um, what I see very often is that you need much more um, text uh, and much more reasoning about the, the, the visual in order to understand what it, what it really means. And that's very easy to, to understand with a lot of BPMN models. I mean, you probably have to learn a couple of these elements. Um, like with language, you have to learn it before you can speak it, but then it's, um, it's, it's very expressive. And yeah, I mean, it, you, you mentioned process mining tools. I think there um, it's probably a slightly different situation because if you mine, if you discover the workflow from kind of events or log files, you probably don't know this correlation of this event happened while or this event can happen. You can only guess it in a way. Um, so um, it, there, it's probably in the better way to just have boxes and arrows. But if you model it like consciously and saying, okay, I want to want to um, design it in a certain way, I think BPMN is simply more expressive. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then I want to ask uh, one question related. Um, maybe you can describe some um, some use case. Uh, for that uh, for workflow automation and usage of BPMN, oh, hundreds, uh, and also maybe you can also somehow um, talk when you design BPMN in order to be automated. Do you uh, actually design all the activities, um, that basically only activities that should should be recorded, or also activities that should happen but cannot be recorded, so, mm -hmm. uh, like in real world? Okay. So um, let's start with the examples. And um, there, I mean, there are lots of them. That's the, um, the cool thing about that. It's totally horizontal. So we have, for example, if I look at our customer base, because that's what I know best, um, we have customers in basically every industry. So it, um, let's start with something like finance or banking. Um, there could be something like um, account opening. It's very, very common. So um, you want to have a new whatever credit card, new bank account or, or something like that. Then you go through a certain workflow, like um, some data is checked. Probably you do a, a, a compliance check, this check and whatever, and a couple of other things. And probably somebody has to approve it depending on what, you're, what you want to do. And as soon as everything is settled, um, you have to like really open the account, which normally means you have to talk to a couple of systems um, where the customer is created, for example. And that's a workflow. Um, there are others like um, even in the trading area, for example, there are interesting workflows going on. Um, or if you look in insurances, um, there are a lot of them like... Also, same thing, you want to have a new contract or you want to settle a claim or these kind of things. Um, if you're looking telecommunications, same thing, you want to have a new like telecom line, you want a new contract, you um, probably uh, even want to make a phone call. There are sometimes workflows going on for that. You want to provision a SIM card. Um, if you're in order fulfillment, we have a couple of e-commerce com uh, companies doing that. Like you order something until it really like you have a shipment at your home. These are all workflows going on in the background. So there are a lot of these kind of applications. Um, what I found most interesting actually is that um, these kind of what I would call business processes are 
that's what a lot of people think of when I say workflow uh, automation, at least if they have some context of that. Um, what I found really interesting over the last years is that we also have a lot of, I would say, more technical use cases around workflow automation. And one of the really prominent ones is um, what's sometimes referred to as the so-called saga pattern. Um, if you look at like microservices, for example, at the moment, the idea is that we don't do big monolithic systems anymore, but we um, distribute the logic into smaller components. And if you're going serverless, there might even be very small functions. And that means you need something uh, or you need a coordination between these because they have to talk to each other in order to get some real business function um, being executed. And if this is a remote setup like distributed components, um, you don't have transaction management. It's pretty simple. I mean... Back in the days, we had a database, a relational database doing all the transactional work for us. And this is not happening anymore in these scenarios. And that means you um, very often have to deal with these kind of problems on even on a kind of a business level, like, hey, I whatever, I create the customer in the CRM system, then I try to create the customer in my bank core banking system, but it doesn't work because whatever. And now you have to deal with that. You can't simply roll back a transaction. You have to deal with that, which might be that you have whatever, you inactivate the other customer or whatever the reaction is, but you have to um, really sort that out. And that's kind of also kind of transactions, but on a business level. And that's where a lot of customers also using BPMN for, because you describe that. And sometimes they are, very easy, um, let's say, integration flows. Just doing like, hey, I call this REST API, this REST API, and third. And if the third fails, I have to um, call a couple of undo APIs in order to get going. And if the like the service is not available at the time I try to call it, I retry it later on because I'm stateful and so on and so forth. So there are very technical um, use cases by now um, as well. I found that very interesting because that's kind of... Um, a rising use case, I would say. That actually sounds very, very useful. I didn't didn't hear about these use cases. Yeah. It, In a way of uh, when we, I mean, uh, okay, I'm from the process mining field yeah. and we usually talk about always business processes, about um, some business activities, but I also have a, a background in programming and in software development. So this actually sounds useful, very useful for figuring out things. Yeah, it does. And it, for me, it comes with the um, with how complicated is it to use a workflow engine. That's why I emphasize the developer-friendly, lightweight approach. Because mm -hmm. for these kind of problems, you would not go for an uh, for a huge like Pega IBM Software IT kind of a solution because it wouldn't work for hey, I want to want to orchestrate these three REST calls. But if it's kind of a very easy to apply library, if you can just embed it in your in your um, service in a way, um, then it makes sense to use that because everybody gets these kind of problems. Um, that's on a huge scale, actually. I expect many more people to realize what kind of problems we get with these uh, remote communication we're doing everywhere uh, nowadays. But it's, yeah, like you said, it's not the typical business um, process, but Let's see how that goes in the near future. But um, very often you actually have to discuss that with business stakeholders because the reaction to these technical failures 
it's very often a business decision. Like, hey, I couldn't create the customer in the system. What should I do? Can I ignore that? Do I have to roll it back there? Um, what's what's the strategy to handle that? It's, it starts with a technical problem, but the reaction to that mm -hmm. is it's very much a business decision. And so yeah, that. So it sounds that the PPM man here really should also help to when developers, for example, want to introduce what they actually do into some. Oh, totally! Yeah, I'm 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 very convinced of that. Yeah. Nice. So a little bit off the topic, <laughs> uh, I just um, <laughs> uh, because also in our field. It's uh, kind of, I would say, even marketed now heavily, this robotic process automation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just wondering how, like, do you feel how close it is to um, workflow automation? And mm -hmm. uh, like, just how would you contrast these two technologies? Okay, um, let's briefly um, summarize RPA or robotic process automation, how I see it. Um, so for the idea basically is that I have a lot of systems um, probably old systems which don't have proper APIs where it can like do a REST call in order to do something. Um, in order to automate stuff, then what RPA does, they have bots basically controlling the graphical user interface. It's kind of <laughs> Windows macro recorder on uh, stereo. So um, there is a huge use case for that because we have these systems out there in a lot of companies and you want to automate things. So um, that makes a lot of sense. It's very much connected to workflow automation because very often you want to automate certain activities. The problem I see with RPA at the moment is um, that very often a lot of things are mixed together. Like, let's describe how I see, um, let's say, the sweet spot of RPA. And then we can briefly talk about how I see it applied because that's a big difference, unfortunately. But how I see it is like, hey, I use an RPA bot in order to control, a, like to do something in a system which doesn't have an API. That if I look at the business process or the workflow, that's one activity typically. Um, so I can use RPA in order to automate one activity in a workflow. And that makes total sense. I would always um, prefer using a proper API, but if the system doesn't provide any, I can use RPA. And that's great. And that will, will solve a lot of problems. Um, what I now see happening is that companies which apply RPA are mixing different granularities together. So they have these like, I steer that one activity, but then I go in another system and do something there. And that's kind of, if I look at the business process, basically two activities, but they mix it together in one huge um, RPA flow. And that means you don't understand the workflow anymore because there are a lot of things like click here, click there, enter that there. Um, so you don't even see the boundary of what's what activity. And you also mix uh, like, let's say the prettleness of RPA flows because they you often have to change them because something in the UI changes um, with rel normally a relatively stable workflow. So now you really have a problem of you have to touch that all the time. And to add insult to injury, um, a lot of companies are also, um, when they start applying RPA, it's started by business departments because they need to do something. Um, and then they experience the lack 
of, let's say, software development resources, probably even in-house. So the IT doesn't have the resources to do something for them. And they say, hey, we have that RPA tool and that can automate a workflow. Um, and we can do that ourselves. Let's just use that um, if IT doesn't have time. And that leads them to building something which might work in in like, uh, yeah, in near sight, but will definitely um, be at least a maintenance hell in the near future and probably lead to really um, unmaintainable architectures. And I think that's a huge risk. And um, that's why I have a very ambivalent feeling about RPA. On the one hand, it's very valuable to automate things, um, to hook it into a real workflow, then it makes sense. On the other hand, it's risky because it's really abused sometimes. Interesting, but uh, it's all. But doesn't it mean that there is basically a trade-off? You can all replace the system with a newer one that you don't need RPA in the first place. Correct, correct. And um, because you're, I mean, you're rooted in process mining. So what we saw um, at a couple of customers now is actually if they, let's say, abused RPA, um, they're kind of now going on to the journey. And the first step in that journey is really to understand the workflow again. And there they're using kind of um, probably mining technologies. We also have something which I wouldn't call mining, but where it can um, correlate a couple of, of events on a, on a BPMN basis. And they use that to understand what this whole RPA mess is doing. And then as soon as they discover that workflow, um, the next step is that they uh, let a workflow engine control the workflow and reduce the bots to the right like granularity of activities. And then exactly what you said is like the third step is whenever it's possible, you replace the bot with a real API call. And that's a good journey to get to a, to a, to a stable um, environment and a better architecture. I see. So, I mean, it actually sounds that RPA doesn't have a huge long future. <laughs> Because, uh, I mean, I guess the systems will be upgraded for something more automatic. Let's let's say um, I hope that too. Um, I guess they will be around much longer than we think for, for a couple of reasons. But um, like as kind of as a technologist, I would um, hope that they are gone soon. Yeah, because it's a painkiller for not having an API. Mm -hmm. And that should go away. But what, what about the workflow? Um, engines. Well, how would you talk about the future of workflow engines? A lot of thoughts. Um, so one is what I mentioned earlier. Um, we, we see a lot of very, even very technical um, use cases for workflow engines. So I think there will be even a bigger need for that because the amount of use cases are, are is basically increasing. Um, not only for that very technical things, but that, that's very, very, very this very um, very eminent for me, but also for uh, like business process automation. I mean, we see all these digitalization initiatives and digital transformation, and we see that we for sure will automate more and more business processes. And I'm, um, I definitely think that workflow engines are an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, of course, I'm biased in a way. I mean, that's what we do as a company where I... Uh, basically which pays my salary. But um, on the other hand, I saw also a lot of architectures uh, over the last three or four years, which tried to be 
totally event-driven, which try to avoid any kind of um, orchestration, which try to avoid workflow engines um, overall. And you could see that this is not the way to go forward. There are a lot of problems which they now really have internally. Um, so I'm pretty much convinced that we will see a lot of um, orchestration in there and that um, we see a big need for workflow, workflow engines. Um, what I could imagine is that the workflow engine itself um, will change a bit. I mean, for different reasons. So, for example, we um, we also um, developed a new workflow engine, like in parallel to the product we have, which is cloud native, which basically means it's really horizontally scalable. So, um, I talked about trading earlier on, and that was um, like a moment I had couple of years back at a customer where they said, hey, you did that nice, um, what I talked about, bank account uh, opening use case. Um, this process is awesome. We like it. We like it how it's automated on Kamunda. Um, we like what the workflow engine can give us. Can we apply the same thing for that trading use case we have over there in the bank? And I was like, hmm, let's look at that. How many trades do you have? And it was like 200K per second. I was like, okay. <laughs> With that relational database we have underneath, probably better not. <laughs> and that made us think to go like, how can we build workflow technology that can serve this use case? And that was one of the starting points why we did a completely new engine besides the product we have. And that's really scalable. And that's one of the areas where I see workflow engines develop. And the other big trend we are seeing obviously is cloud and, and managed services. So, um, and how we compose, uh, basically how we compose applications um, is changing rapidly. And that will have an impact how you build a workflow engine and how it's deployed and how it's interacting with its environment. Um, but it will still be there. That's what I'm pretty much convinced of at the moment. But is this, is this change that you're describing, is it happening because of um, basically you're cutting someone else's pie <laughs> or the, um, in a way that you're moving somewhere where something else exists or is the demand or um, requirements change with years? I would, I would say both. So one thing is that we are seeing uh, more and more new use cases, more automation, um, I mean, a lot of like business models or things we do nowadays weren't just not done 10 years ago. So this, yes, there are a lot of new things. And I think workflow automation enables a couple of them pretty good. Um, on the other hand, um, it's also like taking something else away. But um, I would say mostly um, bespoke solutions because very often it if they don't use a workflow engine in, in these kind of trading or whatever use cases, if we take that as an example, um, they basically did something bespoke. They hard-coded the functionality they needed into that, very often with own state handling, optimized for the use case they have, which works um, and which is a viable solution and makes a lot of sense if you don't have anything else. But I think as soon as you have workflow technology, it makes it much easier. And nobody will be in, unhappy with that because you're not replacing a product. It's like, oh, we can get rid of that really hard to maintain code over there, which we don't want to build. We want to build the business logic. So I'm happy to take it away. That's kind of how I see it. Um, yeah. Okay. And then several more questions. And let's assume that you are uh, 
Okay, uh, let's for, for from perspective of two people. One is a um, working in a company, and how do you start to see that? Uh, oh, maybe workflow engines mm-hmm. would help us. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like what you should, what you should see. Yeah. <laughs> in order to think like that. I mean the. Um... The sequence of steps and the waiting, I think, is the important trigger typically. If you have like a couple of things you have to do in some some sequence, some ordering, and you might have to wait um, because the persistent part is normally important. If you don't have anything persistent, it's probably not worth it. Um, but as soon as it's stateful, it's normally a good um, good moment to think about a workflow engine. Because then you would get a lot of requirements. You have to store the state. You have to operate it. You probably need this and that and so on and so forth. So um, that's where it normally starts. And yeah, that's the gist. The important thing I try to um, always make clear when I talk to people is that the waiting can be very um, can start very early. Like if you call a REST API. If the peer is not available, if the service is down or you have a network problem, you might not be able to reach the other party, the other service. And then you might want to wait for it to become available. Then you're waiting. So it starts very early. It can start with the first rest call. Um, But the sequence of steps and the waiting, that's the important part. Okay. And now let's assume that uh, um, you're you're a student and... What, like to which students would you recommend uh, to study workflow engines or just workflow automation and maybe which resources yeah. uh, would you recommend? I mean, I totally recommend to study that. I mean, it's a, I find it a fascinating topic. I do it basically all my professional life. So uh, of course, I think it makes sense to study that. But um, the cool thing is um, it depends a bit on the, on the role. Like and basically on 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 the um, topic what you study. But if you're in some kind of engineering, software development, software architecture direction, let's assume that, um, then I think it makes a lot of sense. But it, then it's very easy to get going if you just do, um, yeah, just prototype something because that got very easy. I mean, either in the cloud or what I said, the lightweight workflow engine. So if you, for example, for us, if you have Java knowledge. Um, or in the cloud, it even we have Java.net and a couple of other languages as get started guides. You should be able to automate your first workflow in like probably not minutes. Then, if you're really good, probably minutes, but at least hours. And um, this, like, how long does it take to have your first success is very important, I think, to motivate you to look further. And we try to optimize for that actually very much. And I think we're we're on a good track. And that's what I would start with, not like talking about the concepts and the uh, methodology and the theory too much. But hey, this is a small problem. This is a workflow you could do. Get it working. And that's normally where it starts to to be a lot of fun. And then if you have that, you can do things and you can play around with it. You say, hey, okay, I have that activity. Can I, can I add a timer here? What happens? Can I do this and that? And um, this playfulness, um, that's, I think, the key to to really get forward. And that- Would you recommend some resources? Maybe I can also attach them to the episode notes. <laughs> I mean, here. totally. Uh, uh, my view on that but of course i would look at to um like our get started guides for example that's where you can get something going so that's basically the Kamunda docs 
there are um, get started guides or if you want to like do the cloud stuff it's the common cloud docs but um same same area um i think that's the best to get started and included there we also link a, a, a small bpmn tutorial for example but i think you can do that on the way you don't have to start with oh no, oh gosh i have to learn bpmn before i can f automate my first workflow i would do it the other way around do your first thing get going and then take it from there interesting thanks so i will i will attach some of this um, also in the show notes okay um well did we talk about everything <laughs> i guess i think we did talk about a lot of things yes <laughs> so we did a good uh, round trip of workflow automation uh, thank you thank you then for uh, for interview yeah thank you so much for having me uh, for great questions thank you very much for joining and for your time Thank you for listening for this episode of Aside of Data. In case you have questions, follow them to asideofdata at protonmail.com or reach us at Twitter at asideofdata. Subscribe for more episodes in the future.